Welcome to the Millennials Unpublished Podcast, where we talk about everything from gaps in the literature to gaps in society. Thank you for joining us for another episode. This is Jaslyn. And this is Darren. Thank you again for tuning in. We're 260 strong now, I think, followers. On the gram. On the gram, (laughs) popping. So we appreciate that. Um, We also have listeners on six continents now. Six continents, you know. You know, y'all need to go to Antarctica, you know, to get us on seven. So it's great to um, pull up the map and see stuff lighting up, you know? Yeah. So thank you for Thank you for spreading the word. The joy. Um, So let's get into our check-in and check-up. Jocelyn, how are you doing? (laughs) I'm I'm actually doing pretty well right now. That's good. Um, I started uh, a new practice of going on walks around Providence while listening to Black feminist literature, um, reflecting, being in nature, and also getting my exercise in at the same time. Um, It's been doing been doing me well especially since i start off my day that way and then i can just take on the day afterwards yeah it's interesting because i think a lot of times like when you're listening to sort of i guess content about like blackness i think for me sometimes i'm like oh this is heavy but it it seems like for you you're like this is this is good this is nice (laughs) yeah it's strange there was one day where i was like what Brittany Cooper was saying, because I'm listening to Eloquent Rage, and I was just like, ooh, there's a tear that wants to come out. <laughs> and I was like, I can't touch my face because the Rona's outside. But also, I don't want to break down. So I think um, a lot of emotions that maybe I would handle privately in the sense of in my home, being right. outside in the world and reflecting mm-hmm. and dealing with them in that space, I think it's, it's, it's been good. It'd be those trees, that sunlight, that energy, yeah. that light. Oh, the canal running through. <laughs> well, that's me. Scenic. How about you? How are... <laughs> I'm good. I'm pretty good. You know, the only thing I guess I can sort of complain about, I have some neck pain just from like bending over, um, like my head over the um, laptop this whole time and looking down at my phone. So to the people at home, make sure you, you're holding your neck up straight, that you got your posture together. Posture. You're doing your exercises. But other than that, I'm pretty good. Like, Juneteenth was a bop. Like, I was running and sharing my playlist. I was living. (laughs) So I think Juneteenth and the spirit of the ancestors have just been making me feel joyous. So Surviving you. Yeah, I've been listening to... You know I love Cat Black. We talk about Cat Black. So I've been listening to her videos on YouTube um, Mm -hmm. and stuff, and she's been giving me life. So, yeah, I've been pretty good and stuff. Um, I feel like the past few weeks I was a little struggle bus, so like, <laughs> weren't we all? <laughs> so I'm happy to give you give you some joy today. <laughs> yeah, it's refreshing. Yeah, I like that. So should we just should we get into this topic under review? Absolutely, let's do it. All right. So for this week, for our topic under review, we are talking negotiating Black identity. And for this very special episode, we have a very special guest. <laughs> so um, our guest is Stacy Jones. Uh, she's a colleague of mine in our Annenberg PhD program. But I'm going to throw it over to you, Stacy, to introduce yourself. <laughs> okay, well, um, as far as an introduction, as Darren stated, my name is Stacey Jones. I'm from South Carolina, 
I was a resident of Montgomery, Alabama for a couple of years because I did <laughs> undergrad at Alabama State University, the greatest HBCU in the land, but any HBCU graduate will tell you that about their school. <laughs> I later went to the University of Cincinnati for my master's program, and then I ended up in Philadelphia, now at Annenberg, the School for Communication. Yeah, and how do you know Stacy Jasmine, maybe, you know? Oh, I mean, <laughs> I met Stacy through our wonderful podcast, Sip and Chat. She came through, and I like the vibes, the energy, and everything she's saying. It's like, we need to have her on the show. We need to have her on the show. So <laughs> that's yeah. how I know Stacey. So thank you for agreeing to be here, especially on such like late notice and stuff. We kind of just threw it at you this week. So very much No, really. It. Thank y'all for having me. Like, it means a lot to even be invited to the space. So thank y'all. No, no, of course, of course, of course. <laughs> I'm smiling on here. Y'all can't see it, though. But <laughs> yeah, I want to respect your time. So should we just dive into these questions, Jaslyn? I think we should. All right. So for this episode in particular, we wanted to talk negotiating Black identity. For our first question, you know, actually, maybe you want to start us out, Jaslyn, because I think you came up with this question. I'm not about to overshadow your question or take credit <laughs> for it on this episode. <laughs> yeah. So when uh, we decided that we were going to ask you to be on here, a question that I had was sort of about distinguishing between the different types of feminism there is. Um, in my head, Black feminism is a corollary of feminism, and then womanism is a corollary of Black feminism, but I'm like, I'm figuring it all out. So I guess for you, what are the differences, and do you maybe identify with either one of these political cluster naming groups? Yes, I boldly and explicitly identify as a womanist, and I do that for reasons mostly situated in the fact that womanism has, since its foundation, been um, around intersectionality and acknowledges multiple identities that can exist within one frame, whereas feminism, I mean, the new wave, wave feminism, a lot of people will argue, is more inclusive and looks mm -hmm. at some of those intersecting identities. But some of the foundations don't really allow me to necessarily identify with that house of feminism. Um, and with womanism in particular, I do not want to misquote, and I should definitely know who it was who said this, who, um, Alice, feminism <laughs> is the purple as womanism is the lavender. Oh, I've heard this. I've heard this. Oh, who yeah. said that? Alice Walker? I said Alice. <laughs> you were, you were <laughs> right there. You were right. You were right there. Oh, because the color purple. <laughs> Also too, I just like, could not get yeah. that out. I feel like my brain has been shut down for a couple of weeks for mental health purposes because we all know like the current right. moment that we're, we're in. Yeah. So I haven't had conversations like these in so long. And when I have my usual arsenal where I go to pull out these names, it's just not yeah. empty, but I got to dig into it. No, <laughs> so I feel Oh, yeah. So the quote I just mentioned as far as feminism mm -hmm. being to purple as womanism is to lavender, that <laughs> quote in itself really helps to see like the intersectionality and the um, multi-layeredness that can exist within just simple colors. I know purple is the example, but we look at purple and it's kind of bold, whereas lavender is a mixture of multiple things happening at once, even though it's under that same spectrum of purple. So that's how I like to identify myself with womanism because I'm always Black and woman at the same time. So having that house of feminism to identify with it heavily aligns with who I am and who I want to be as a scholar, researcher, and just woman in general. And then like another thing is like I I would say I went to an HBCU as I stated, but we didn't necessarily heavily identify with like conversations around feminism. 
mm-hmm. once I got to my master's program, like a liberal college in Cincinnati, it was like a conversation that was always happening. And like, are you a feminist? Are you a feminist? And I don't know if it was like an age gen- or generational difference or just a space difference. But um, even with seeing the people who heavily identified with feminism, I saw a lot of traits that I don't necessarily align with. And that's not to say that that's all people who fall out of the house. Just a lot of people who I happen to interact with have some of those traits that I'm referring to. Whereas I just have experienced that with people who identify as womanist. So I feel that that's that's always been my hesitation with identifying as a feminist. I've been like, I don't really like the way you move, so mm-hmm. I can't I can't cluster myself with you. And I mean, this year is different because, um, as we mentioned, this current moment we're in. But any years previously, like you'll see tons of women from different backgrounds at feminist marches, women's marches. But then when it's a Black Lives Matter movement or anything of that sort, the only folks who were there were fellow Black people. So it was like, why does your feminism or your women's march not include these Black women who also have this other struggle or fight going on? Whereas womanism always include both at the same time. Those are questions and answers. Darren, do you want to hop in? Yeah, I was saying as well, um, I think to Jasmine, maybe a little bit before this, I, I remember you bringing up in, I think, one of our SIP in chats, or maybe it was just in messaging or something, that even sort of the current moment that's happening right now, there's been an appropriation or misappropriation of sort of, um, like, the say her name. You pointed this out, Stacey, um, to me, oh. because that um, phrase was particularly put in place, if I'm understanding it correctly, for sort of like women, Black women who have been brutalized and killed by the police. Um, But even with the current protests that are happening right now, it's been co-opted to the say his name situation when when that's not what it was for to to begin with. And I think it's a really good example of how I think the Black Lives Matter movement has um, started out particularly with with women, two of whom I I believe were queer. but now it's currently sort of, or, or people are, are trying, a lot of men are assuming that it's particularly about um, sort of like us in general, rather than... That's a major theme I've been yeah. seeing. And I, I don't think I'm more um, aware than I have been in the past. It's just that it's just so bold. Like even if you look at Facebook statuses and um, profile pictures, you pe- see people saying, I, I have to care because I have a Black son. Black Lives Matter because yeah. I have a Black yeah. brother. I have a Black husband. And it's like okay so little black girls your fellow black women your black sisters like are we not also included into these lives that matter and not only that but the people who experience um police brutality or racially insensitive harassment or death i mean yeah it gets extreme as that so i don't know i don't i really can't even tell you i guess that's kind of just a black cultural trope to where men get put on the pedestal and a lot of their issues get amplified and everybody fights for them whereas black women we gotta for ourselves in most instances but I feel like it's really visible in this moment where you see the type of rhetoric that's happening and I know you're talking about the hashtag say his name I think you reshared something and I was like you're gonna take that to hell thank you I mean I I cannot I'm not a digital scholar I don't necessarily study what's happening on social media but being someone who's been in black twitter since 2008 (laughs) I when I first saw say her name going viral it was referring to Sandra Bland and like even the instance now a lot of people are saying say her name in reference to Breonna Taylor because for the past few weeks everyone has had George Floyd Rashad Brooks like their names get amplified and like across the board everyone knows them but you can ask someone do you know about Breonna Taylor do you know what happened to her and they have no answers so that's why the hashtag say her name is as important as what it is and why it shouldn't be appropriated because men's names are said yeah yeah 
Um, we kind of had another conversation about this topic and I, I feel like this is all because of like patriarchy, you know, like men are, <laughs> are prized, they're supposed to be respected and cherished and any threat to them is seen as a threat to everyone, but threat to women is not a community problem. So right now we're seeing a call to action from black women and it's being met with like just challenge and frustration and anger because how dare black women put themselves in the center of this conversation um, where we're trying to make change for the community as if we're not a part of the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's something I've been saying. Like, why, why, this isn't what this is about. Like, why are you trying to make, like, <laughs> why are you trying to have a fight? Why are you separating us? Because when we're a collective, it's Black men's voices that are always highlighted. So sometimes we do have to step away and say, hey, this is an issue that is particularly happening to Black women and it's something that we need to talk about. Like, Mm-hmm. And a lot of those instances, black men are the perpetrators of the, of those of yeah. that harm. So, like, yeah. I guess some of them feel mm, I don't know what the world what's the word I'm looking for insecure or vulnerable. Yeah, yeah, when someone says, "Hey, but you're doing this," especially when it's a moment like this where I don't even want to say that we know what the primary issue is because intersectionality says they're all primary issues. It's just what we're deciding to have conversations about. And people like to pretend that you can't have multiple conversations at once when you can. <laughs> like you can't you walk can. and chew gum. You can do both. It's <laughs> <not>. <laughs> you can. And yeah. I, yeah, I think I told you about it, but I know um, I saw this one tweet. It was maybe last month. And I feel that it all encompassed like the feeling of not only myself, but many Black women and Mm-hmm. our everyday lives not only this moment but this woman and her friend they were dressed in their workout clothes i right. hate that i even have to say how they were dressed but they were outside yeah. running and um i think this happened in atlanta but they were running down the street and this um black man just started yelling at them and harassing them like cat calling yeah. them and they just keep running but the thing is they don't want to go home because this man is following them so they don't want yeah, him to see sense. where they live so instead, they decide to run into this hotel. So they're in the hotel, and um, they obviously look frustrated. They look panicked. They yeah. look afraid. And the hotel clerk um, let them in through the little buzzer that they have behind the desk. And they said, don't let him in. Don't let him in. So the man was closed out. And you all probably know how like hotels generally have two barricades. First, you go yeah. in, then you use your key to go into the other side. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the man was at that in-between because he didn't have access to the interior of the hotel. And this white woman comes down and she's looking out the window. She says, who let this monkey in? <gasps> and yes, she goes, who let this monkey in? And then the women, like the, at least the woman who was telling the story, she was like, in that moment, she just realized how there's always two, like two enemies coming towards her. One, she's running from being harassed and sexually assaulted. But yeah. two, she's facing racism at the same moment. So she goes to tell them, she, again, no one's trying to help them. They're obviously frustrated. They are afraid to call the police because we know what happens when you call police yeah. on black men. Even if they are perpetrating a crime, no crime is worthy of death, period. Mm-hmm. So you don't even want to put them in that predicament. But um, then the lady goes to say, is this one of y'all's baby daddy? Oh, and so like this, this woman is visibly frustrated. So like all she can do in this moment is cry. And another crazy thing about it is that these white women who stayed at the hotel, they were coming in during the time. She has it on video and everything. And the white women are, like, recording the black man who's harassing he, He's like, yeah, you see these B words? You see them right oh my goodness. Like, he's not putting any of this violence towards white women. So is that, like, a women thing? It's just explicitly these black women who he decided he wanted to harass that day. And, yeah. again, like, in that moment, the black women could only, like, deal with their identity duality of like blackness and womanness of like what do I do to feel safe in this moment 
so I can't remember all of the story, but if I'm not mistaken, they did call the police who I think they didn't even give him a citation or anything. And then he eventually left. So then they felt safe enough to go home. But all they could think of like, when do we go outside? Like, can I not run anymore? Can I not exercise? Can I jog? If this is like an immediate threat that's always facing me. Yeah. yeah. Um, a question I guess I have is how do you, do you think it helps when you can take terminology from the literature or the field of work that you do and use it in discussions with people who are in the academy? Because I recently kind of started talking about misogynoir with people and I for me, I see value in having a word to talk about the experience, but then I also see where if someone doesn't try to reach in and learn more and do more work, presenting a term, it's just kind of empty uh, and doesn't really connect the experience. So do you see value or do you think that um, the terminology can stay in academia, but we need to figure out ways to relay this more naturally? I think it depends on the space. And actually, I think I think you may have read my most recent piece. I know Darren did. But uh, one of yes. the main problems that I'm pushing is that we don't need to take our language into these spaces. We need to bring the everyday language of people who live their everyday lives into academia. Because why is that is not valid enough? Why do we have to restructure a word or come up with a construct to describe a life that people have been living for centuries? Yeah. So um, that's one of the things I'm really challenging in some of my work. But I can see how it can be beneficial in some spaces, but you never know when you're around others who want to grow in that capacity. But um, I would say, I don't know, like when I come home or when I'm, I don't even want to say everyday conversations because every conversation yeah. is an everyday conversation. <laughs> yeah, I get what you're saying. And I don't want to explicate the different type of spaces because I feel like even in doing that, I'll make one seem to be more valuable than the other. But when I'm, let me say not in academic contexts, I found it more, um, more, helpful to use language that people already know to describe what's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I was just going to say, I think you made me think of two things. I think I had a point back to what sort of like Jasmine was talking about as well. I think something that we discussed was that the term intersectionality that's used constantly coming from, I believe, Kimberly Crenshaw, like that came out to describe the experiences of Black women in particular. Um, and I feel like that term has been taken and used for everybody else. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And has been, when I guess. did that not happen? Yeah, right. <laughs> like a bit of like a, like a, what a, like a heuristic or learning tool for other people to understand their experiences. Mm-hmm. But the very people who it was developed for and, and by, you know, are discarded. So I was like, well, that's very messed up. Because <laughs> we can't cuss on this show. Um, <laughs> but, um, and even with that, like you said, the word and term itself was meant to amplify the voices of Black yeah. women and Black people. And what's so interesting is that now, like, because Black and woman are only two intersecting identities, people are like, well, we need to be talking about these multiple intersecting identities. And yeah. I, I feel it is valuable in some contexts, but again, people have ran off. Like, they've used the foundation built by a Black woman to describe right. the everyday experiences of Black women to, to describe their everyday life. And yeah. Um, so something I wanted to add to, thank you for that. And something I wanted to add to, as you were talking about these different things, when I was reading like your amazing thesis today, <laughs> like I, I think um, <laughs> your face. Uh, let, me, was... let me tell them why I'm laughing. I'm laughing because that was like my first attempt at academic writing. And I mean, I look back now and I think, okay, that was pretty good for a first attempt, but I see so many gaps to where I could have made it so much more, um, 
align with who I am right now. I was, I said it like that. I wasn't even being facetious. I think your writing is just fire in general, you know, <laughs> like, you know, I know you have that essay you need to drop soon. You know, I'm not going to say too much because, you know, you'll publish it out to the people soon enough. But I think a big theme from the work that you do, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, is identity negotiation and thinking about it. And I think like part of what you were describing, like when sort of going back and forth between different contexts is like this push and pull between sort of who am I and who can I be in different spaces. And I did have sort of like, you know, I have a whole bunch of questions about this stuff for you. <laughs> but I, I, I wanted to know first if you, if you could give the, you know, give people maybe sort of like a bit of language or, or your thoughts about identity negotiation or sort of as a construct, like what it means. Sure. So there are multiple um, disciplines that use identity as some of the frameworks that they do within their fields. But I explicitly rely on the communication theory of identity when I'm doing mm. identity work. And it says that um, identity is multi-layered, is multifaceted. And um, there are four frames. There's the personal, the enacted, the relational, and the communal. So I know we had conversations in, our, um, in other messages before. <laughs> Couldn't talk too much about that. But uh, we've had conversations before. And say uh, I, in my heart, I identify as a Black woman. Say that I'm a racially ambiguous Black woman, but my mother is Black. She's only right. taught me Black things. So to me, I am a Black woman. But with the communication theory of identity, we must also acknowledge that if my white passing skin walks into other spaces, I am received and interacted with as mm -hmm. if I am a white woman. So that kind of just highlights the whole multifaceted and multi-layered part. So it's who I am, who people think I am, who I'm trying to be. All those questions are always at play. And as yeah. far as identity negotiation, um, for that, I mostly rely on cultural contracts theory. And the foundation of that is that we live in America. Eurocentric <laughs> <laughs> values are highlighted. And when it comes to Black and other marginalized bodies, you oftentimes, when in white spaces, have to perform in order to be accepted, in order to gain um, mobility, in order to interact in the space and be seen as someone who's valuable. Um, so some of the, should I talk about the research I've done in the past? Y yeah. I think you should okay. dive in. Before you do, I just wanted to know, I love this conversation because I do developmental work and a lot of what I do is focus on context, whether it's social, environmental. So all the stuff you're saying, I'm like, I live for this. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Me too. My major project, a lot of the work I do comes from who I am. And I think you will find that with most scholars who are people of color, because we get into these spaces and we realize those stories aren't often told or mm -hmm. aren't told from perspectives that seem genuine to us. So um, when I got to University of Cincinnati from my undergrad institution, it was like, I don't want to say a culture shock, but it was really different. It was, <laughs> it was some. It was some. I'm still putting a name to it. I mean, when I speak more of my research, I guess I did come up with one construct to describe it. But um, just navigating in the space, so much of it was right. so different from what I knew and what I grew to love from mm -hmm. being in a Black space for four years of my life. Um, for one example, it was a couple of police brutality shootings. So crazy because this is like a year-round thing. We're in this yeah. moment now, and that's the moment I was in uh. four years ago. But I remember walking campus. If you're not familiar, University of Cincinnati is probably like a seven percent Black population. Wow. But they they um, pride themselves on their diversity. Yeah. Yeah, they have summer programs to bring in diverse people. So they yeah. sure, they sure do. And for, they pride themselves on their diversity. Yeah, and for like the general, for the general public, I don't even know if our audience is just the general public, but for people who don't know, the United States is thirteen to fourteen percent black people. So. <laughs> 
show. That's that right. tells you that it wasn't what's the word yeah. I'm looking for. There was no equity in that diversity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just wanted to throw it out there because people. I was like, people might not even know how many black people are in yeah. the states. <laughs> yeah, and I was I was also the only black person in my cohort of about twelve. So I remember walking on campus, those recent shootings that had, had happened, and you know, like, we all collectively have this mourning period, at least yeah. the majority of us, to where, like, we are in this mood, and the only way we can really get ourselves out of it is to have conversations amongst each other and to be, yeah. like, in, in congregation with one another. Yeah. Is congregation the word I'm looking for? Like community, it, you know, just... It's almost yeah. like congregation, I think. Whatever word you said, but, it's valid. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're right. You're right. I'll the Collective healing. <laughs> Yes, moments of collective healing. And at Alabama State University, like when situations like that would happen, there would right. be emails sent. There would be counselors on like on board to yeah. where you instantly knew any of the spaces that you could go to in order to find that collective healing as fast as possible. Even when you were walking on campus, like it was just this collective warning and this collective knowing that we were there for each other. And I remember walking around on the University of Cincinnati's campus. And everybody was just living their life. Like, everybody I walked past, yeah. like everybody's just living their life like nothing happened. And we can't do that. So, like, I was sitting in class that night. And, like, I'm getting called on. Everybody in the class is talking. And I, I was just wondering, how in the world is it that I'm supposed to perform at the same level as my colleagues <laughs> when I have this, this collective warning that's going on in my head that no one mm-hmm. else is experiencing? And that really made me realize one of the biggest gaps between my white space of a predominantly white institution versus that of a black space. And that made me kind of want to do some research as to the differences across those spaces, which led to my master's thesis. Yeah, I just wanted to jump in here because I I wanted you to get there as well. But I just wanted to echo that, like, I was in Baltimore when Freddie Gray was murdered. Um, So I don't know if we all just have these collective sort of like incidences of being in in schools and institutions where Black people are murdered because they're murdered all the time. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, there was a curfew in Baltimore. And I remember sort of like the CVS is burning. And I think there's a lot of white students and people like, look at it, it's burning. This is cool, cool, whatever. And I was just holding bed just like by myself, like feeling isolated and being like, this is this is horrible. This is just atrocious. Um, so I wanted to add that, but, um, I think something that I'd seen in your work and it might sort of get to your master's thesis a bit too, but, um, you're talking about there not being space for this. And I was thinking of like, um, this time of like identity affirming spaces when I was reading sort of like the work that you were doing and different things. So I want to throw it back over to you. I don't know if you want to speak on that on your, on your thesis, you know, we love a segue, but (laughs) I wanted to, uh, to hear what you had to say about that. Sure. So along with that experience, another thing that I, that was like really visible to me was the fact that when it happened to be another Black student in the class, I was the only one who would peep in and like chime in on issues that were pertinent to Black bodies. Mm. And so like it was this one class where the other Black student happened to be another HBCU graduate where she would also join in with me. So I, I started uh. observing it and I realized in any space I was at in this institution in particular, the only time Black voices were speaking from Black perspectives with like I don't want to say black vernacular, but yeah, A-A-B-E as well, like being relaxed with their tongue, just telling the truth was when it was a fellow HBCU graduate. So I was like, wait a minute, like what is going on here? And then (laughs) I thought from my own perspective where like I built this confidence from my HBCU to where I know my life is valid, so you can't tell me it isn't when I go to bring it up into these courses. And I was like, I wonder if this is other people's experiences, which as you stated, led to my (laughs) um, master's thesis. And with that thesis, I wanted to explore the differences of identity negotiation for those Black students across the spaces to see if there were any drastic differences and what mm-hmm. could it be pointed back to. 
And that's where the term identity affirming spaces arrived. Um, what that research found is that when black individuals are able to interact in identity affirming spaces, which is a space where you don't have to code switch, you don't have to conform your identity, you don't have to prescribe to Eurocentric ideologies or ways of being, that they build this level of confidence or boldness where they're less likely to conform when in white spaces. So that's why when I heard those vocal students, I just happened to know that what well, I, I didn't even happen to know, I would later find out that they were also HBCU graduates. And um, I'm still doing, I have to dive back into that research because as you know, my research has shifted a little bit. Mm -hmm. But um, I could think of some of the quotes from some of the uh, participants in that. And one black guy, he was talking about how, you know how some people code switch or talk white in order to get their yeah. point across. He said Definitely. instead he learned the art of speaking white and needs. And he said speaking white and needs is when <laughs> you speak A-A-V-E, you speak in your colloquial tongue, you state your issue and why it's important to you, and then you go, and this is why white people should care. Yeah. <laughs> and he said that, <laughs> and navigating white and needs, he says that's a tool that he learned at his HBCU. And a lot of students, they didn't name it that. They kind of spoke on the same trope of saying what they want to say, how they want to say it, and then adding that addendum. And this is why everybody should care <laughs> about it, I think. And, um... He said I can coin the term white needs, but I'll leave it to him because he's also working on his PhD. <laughs> He'll be doing yeah. his own work. <laughs> but um, just that in itself kind of speaks on some of the different stylistic, maybe not stylistic, but performance choices that students decide to enact depending on their backgrounds or where they come from, if they had the chance to operate in such huge identity affirming spaces where they were able to build that confidence in their Black identity. Yeah, I just want to say I experienced this firsthand because I was in class with Stacy, <laughs> um, and one of our courses it was a primarily black class, um, but it was just so interesting. So I went to PWI, um, so I, I I don't know. I just you know I had some internalized things I was working through, but I, I feel like Stacy, you just sat so comfortably in that course and like you just like answer questions. You said what you had to say whenever something you know wasn't sort of sitting right on part of something else. You're like mm, the hand went up. <laughs> You did what you had to do. And I, I very much sort of like observing that and learning that from you. Um, and I think like you're the person who told me to, to come to the course. So thank you for that. <laughs> but I'm glad also you were too, in there. Yeah. But also too, I think like um, you, you're doing that and, be, and sort of embodying that in that space, I feel like helped to create and cultivate that space. At least for me as a student, I can say that. So um, in hearing about your work, I was like, this makes complete sense because like <laughs> it seems as though the work does come from the everyday and the work carries through. It's not just like writing, you know, like on the paper. It's like, this is, you are the work, you know, when you're doing the work. So oh. I just wanted to add that anecdote. Well, it's not even anecdotal. That's, that's the truth, you know? That's I the think. truth. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of classmates will say that the same way I talk in class is the same way I'm talking yeah. in casual talk, same way I talk when we go out. And from my experience, professors, I always get comments like, I enjoyed you in this class. You really brought a lot. Yeah, because you don't get black students who talk like this. Yeah. <laughs> every year and I, I, I called out so many professors for things they said and I think it was new to them in a lot of instances because I mean even I mean we can think of the current moment and like some of our conversations with uh fellow black Annenbergers like they'll say oh this happened last two months ago but I didn't say anything about it I'm like what like do you want me to say something for you <laughs> like I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm less likely to be passive about racially insensitive situations or conversations so why would I be like, I know yeah. what it's like to not have to deal with that. So why would I allow myself to deal with that now? I think yeah. 
challenging people in authority is something that either you're raised to do or you learn to do it the hard way later in life. And I, I don't know if it's because at this point I've done so much teaching and worked with different people. Um, my last um, TA position uh, in like the lecture of like 200 something students, I would raise my hand and be like, well, actually you could explain this this way. And that would also be a better way or like another way if someone has this perspective, just kind of chiming in and like sitting in the fact that what you know is valid and deserves mm-hmm. to be heard by people. Um, so that's something that I've developed explicitly more recently where I can point to and be like, yeah, I'll be in the classroom and I'll challenge the professor. Yeah. That's another thing I concluded in my research. It wasn't to say that only HBCU graduates can attain this identity fulfillment and stand up in these spaces, but it was to say that that space allowed, was served as a conduit to make that easier, to make learning those mm-hmm. traits easier. Any student can, you can go to a PW, you can be from white neighborhood, white elementary, white middle right. high school, all the way to college. And if you take the, if you took the time yourself to build that, um, confidence in identity, you too can stand in those spaces and do the same thing. It was just to explicate the identity affirming spaces lead mm-hmm. to that level of fulfillment quicker. And it's a space that most people, many people, especially marginalized groups, should be able to interact with at least for a couple years of their life so that they know like everything you do and the ways you do it, your ways of knowing, your ways of being that are situating your blackness are just as valid as any of this white stuff they tell us we're supposed to act like these respectability politics, all that stuff. I talk about yeah. my wig like in almost every conversation, not because not because <laughs> women in wigs, but because it always just comes up. Like it's all like yeah, my other when I had my other wig on, this happened when I was doing this versus when I had this wig on. Like you, I mean, wigs are my everyday life. Yeah. <laughs> And I don't want to say it's an aspect of Black womanhood, but hair surely is. And um, yes. I know it was this one project I was doing. I was doing like a scholar on the street thing. And yeah. I was in West Philly. And this is when I learned the um, relationship between West Philadelphia natives and UPenn. It's like a very strange relationship that I wasn't aware mm-hmm. of until I attempted to do this project. I had on like my long wig. It was straight. And I had on like my pin or my, it was either my pin or my Edinburgh cap. I was right. walking out and I was just asking two questions what does blackness mean for you and what does happiness mean for you? So I'm walking uh-huh. on the street and I'm like, hey, hey, like, can we have this conversation? Everybody turned me down when I was walking around with that pin hat. <laughs> I'm like, what? And I, I tried to stop like 10 people. Every single person turned me down. I was like, I'm just going to go home. Next day, I think I took my wig off and I had like my Afro puff or something. I didn't do the Afro puff on purpose. I just, it was just time for that wig yeah. to come off. Yeah. The only reason it was gone was because I had the hat securing it. <laughs> so I took my little braids or whatever, had my Afro puff. I, y'all, no joke, every single person I stopped on the street had a conversation with me that next day. And I brought wow. it up to my dean and um, also a friend that I have who's from Philadelphia. And they, like, had the conversation with me about this strange relationship that Penn has with West Philadelphia natives and why they were probably not likely to have those conversations with me. But I should probably talk about why I even did that project. It all goes back to what we're um, talking about as far as identity affirmations. But I was sitting in a critical race theory class and every week it's like, well, mm. what does black even mean? What does identity even mean? Like, and I kept asking, who are we to define these things? Like, people yeah. this life every day. Who yeah. are we, the very few black students who were in that class, <laughs> along with the many white students, who are we to have conversations about what people, um, what people, what words and terms people should use to identify as if they live this life every day? Who are we mm-hmm. to say what blackness means if people live it, they know it, that's all they've ever known. So the purpose of the Man on the Street project was to break what Howard Becker, I think this uh, article Mm -hmm. was in 1967, he refers to it as the hierarchy of credibility. 
but it pretty much states mm-hmm. that scholars or in most instances Eurocentric hierarchies are the ones who create these terms they're the ones who name these things and it's like why not disrupt that and allow naming to the people who live it so that was the purpose of that project and also the purpose of a lot of the work that I'm currently doing yeah I'm just like wow I always just like dang okay now I gotta just sitting in it I just wanted to add in too, like I think like right now you're just you're just you're doing work, Stacy. Like you're 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 doing the work. <laughs> so I think too, and sort of acknowledging that and what you spoke on, I think something for me, particularly as like a black man, and thinking about the ways that people conceptualize work. I talk fast, y'all, but <laughs> the ways that people conceptualize. I do too. I probably. <laughs> it's all right. We'll be fine. But conceptualize work <laughs> and think about these different things is um, something I've been sort of calling myself out on and sort of like making sure I have more accountability for is like naming the people who are giving me this life, you know, (laughs) giving me this thought and giving me sort of like this work. Um, So saying like, oh, like something that like Stacey said or like a lot of stuff that I know has come from Jaslyn. And naming that and being like my friend Jaslyn told me X, Y, and Z and not taking sort of the contribution or like the thought, you know, and running with it and putting your name over it. I think that's the way that Massage Noir um, presents itself. That's even a thought from Jaslyn because people don't sort of compensate for the labor of sort of black women in particular. It's like, I don't want to say it's invisibilized because I think it's actionable. I think men just take it and run with it. <laughs> so it's, it's taken, it's co-opted, it's stolen. Um, so I wanted to bring that, that point up too. We should have put your Venmo up now. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah sorry so I, I didn't know which direction you wanted to go from there Jasmine but I wanted to throw well yeah that. that's why it's a toss-up because you you like jumped into something that we were gonna talk we were gonna ask you about uh, and then um we had another question before that so I guess we might as well just keep the direction of the conversation going. And um, I think, Darren, you are sort of asking about, like, as a Black student right now, how can we find or create identity-affirming spaces? Is there sort of a way to go about it, or is this, like, a is it- individual case-by-case sort of deal? Yeah. You guys, to be honest, that is why that research is on pause. My arsenal of, like, my gas tank is slowly falling out because I haven't had that space in so long. Mm. So I came out so bold and so loud because I'm gassed up by Alabama State, just as other HBCU <laughs> graduates are gassed up from their places. And, like, slowly but surely, the gas hand just goes down lower and lower, and I've yet to really find um, an identity-affirming space that can serve in that same capacity. But I know what has worked for other people are mm. things such as um, Black student unions or uh, mm. Black student groups on their campuses. Me, personally, I think I compare them too much <laughs> to what I knew and, like, what Blackness looked like in my Black school. <laughs> you know <laughs> so better. You've known better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think another layer is that I'm now at Penn, where a lot of people have picked up on elitist ideologies, even Black and brown folks. So, like, I've noticed when I attempt to hang out in spaces like that, Sometimes the conversation can lean to somewhere I'm not trying to be or like I, I do not want to be a black elitist. And if you have conversations with too many of them, the ideas might start to sound you good. start so to become maybe a millionaire would be a good title for me. <laughs> Accumulating <laughs> wealth all of a sudden is a priority. Exactly. I'm not like those blacks. Like those <laughs> conversations. And I do not want to be that person. So I just steer clear from it. 
And I've realized how easy it is to do in spaces like Penn, like just from the opportunities that are afforded to you or the spaces mm-hmm. you're able to go to. It's so easy to just drop everything you know and go to where you want to be in order to gain that upward mobility. Right. But I'm, yeah. try- I'm, I'm, I'm grounded so far. And if I did yeah. this long, I could be grounded for the rest of the time. <laughs> yeah, I think like even like your work, it's made me think about the world so much differently because like I found myself sort of even in conversation with like parents and like my mom sometimes like correcting. And I'm like, what am I correcting? Because it's like, who can correct who? That like brings up notions mm-hmm. of power. And, like my mm-hmm. mom would be like, oh, can you sort of like look over this thing really quick? And I'd be like, oh, were you trying to say? And I'm like, what What do I mean trying to say? She said mm-hmm. what she said. <laughs> but it's like, it can seep into you and be like, oh, I need to correct this. I need to fix this. This isn't valid enough. But understanding like, no, it is. <laughs> it's more valid. Mm-hmm. That's like that algae comment in my ethnography piece from my, my, uh, but in an ethnography piece, it was on my grandmother. And at mm-hmm. one point she was talking about this pond that she has in her garden. She's like, yeah, we can't fish in no more with all that algae. There's something along those lines she said, and I spelled yeah. it out like when I was transcribing it. And I put an asterisk, and then in my footnotes, I said, by algae, she means algae. And I was like, wait a minute. If someone <laughs> reading this can't use context clues to know when she says green stuff in a pond, that she's talking about algae. Like, who am I to correct her pronunciation? I knew what she was saying. If other folks don't know, that's their problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. I think like in the sociolinguistics literature, um, I'm going to forget the person's name, dang, but look up translanguaging. I feel like if you're listening um, and there's a lot of sort of thoughts on that and with language use, I think that could be relevant um, Mm -hmm. to that topic. What are your thoughts (laughs) on sort of like resiliency narratives that are assigned to Black people? (laughs) What are your thoughts? What do you think? I don't know. Like in the beginning, I would like, I think they, they, it's something everybody wants to look at, like, oh, look at this greatness, look at this story. But now, like, where I'm situating myself with my research and also who I am as a person in general, it's like, why Black folks always got to be exceptional for somebody to give them a hand clap? And a lot of these resilience narratives, at least the ones I can think of, is always about yeah. Black people having to be five times <laughs> as great as their counterparts in order to, you know, they achieved it. They, they, they really did it. And you guys, wow, I was doing this quick assessment. I don't even remember what it was for. And it was this verbal part. And it, I had to like read a paragraph and then select which questions were on it. I almost emailed the company for one of the, like the way they worded one of their paragraphs. Mm. It was on Jesse Owens. Y'all don't laugh at me, but Jesse Owens, he the one who ran, right? Yes, he's he the one track who ran. Star. Okay. Yes. So, <laughs> it was like, it says something about Jesse was like a, a langley little boy until he, um, yeah, he was langley and needed help until he met his white uh, coach, such as so and so, and then he became a star. White like, savior. This, this white man is the. He, the <laughs> He taught him how to run. The boy didn't know how to run. He had that speed. Like, I don't, it's just stuff like that. Whereas these stories, resilience, and it's always, usually the person who helps them reach that point. There's this, this yeah. one white character to where if it hadn't been for them, they would have never got there. And it's like, man, come on. Like, come yeah. on. He was right. just a langley little boy until he met his white coach. Like, and it said, it explicitly said his white coach and then said his name. Yeah. And like, if we're taught this from K through 12, how do we sort of like internalize and and see ourselves through that own framing? You know, like we we need to not do that. We need to not take that on and look at ourselves as like, you know, when I got here, this one person sort of like, you know, took me on and that like, I don't know. I don't want to go on a tangent with this. Yeah. I'm going to stop here. But no, it's funny that you said that because when Darren brought up the question, I I almost (laughs) went into a little like rant. And then it's also funny that you're like, well, we learned this as 
their children. I was like, oh, you don't say. As the resident developmental cocci person, I, I have such a beef with resilience as a factor we look to in terms of how people develop because there's so much that goes into a person, so much experience, and also so many structures in society that it doesn't even matter if you have all these like greatly looked upon skills you can still not achieve in the ways people believe to be excellent so I in my work when I speak about adversity I refuse to talk about resiliency and all that sort of stuff because it's nonsense we're talking about your ability to navigate the world as as it's presented to you we're not using white standards of achievement (laughs) markers of success how you make them feel safe and comfortable I don't care about that I want to know how you navigate the world as you experience it and then and use that and transfer that to contexts that are similar. So, yeah, uh, you made me think of a really good example. I'm from this country town, and, like, as early as the second grade, you take this gifted and talents test, and if you pass it for the rest of your, um, what is it called? Post, it's not post-secondary. When you're 12th grade. Primary school. Yeah, for the rest of primary school, you're in these gifted and talented classes. So, like, mm-hmm. I took the test in the second grade, and um, I scored so high they thought I cheated, so they wouldn't allow me in the program, because my brother wow. had just been accepted a couple years before. So they wouldn't allow me in the program. So I take it the next year. No, I I took it again, like, the next week, because they thought I cheated. Right. So they made me take it again, scored the same thing. So anyway, I'm in this program or whatever, and my mom made me do marching band. I wanted to be a cheerleader. She made me do band. <laughs> so my electives every single school year, every single semester was my gifted and talented program and band. <laughs> That's all I did. Like I wasn't able to really explore any other type of um, extracurriculars or activities until I later did cheerleading. But um, when I got to the ninth grade, that was the first time where like you have to take a course and it was typing, I think. So I had to take a typing gotcha. course and I got in there. And what was so mind boggling to me is like, first of all, I just flew through the course because I had been typing on like home key and without looking since maybe the third grade because they taught mm-hmm. us that and I wow. just taught the program. And the teacher, she goes to stand up there and she's like, yeah, so you guys will need this skill if you decide to go to college so with so-and-so. And I was like, I remember in that moment, like, wait a minute, that was my first time ever in my life hearing college presented as an option. <laughs> so ah. I was like, wait a minute. And that's not to say that college is for everyone, but it yeah. really made me think back to like how different were would they their lives have been or my life have been had I not heard college as the only choice or had they heard, oh, college is this thing that everybody can attain. So like I really to this day I think through that because I feel like so many people get left behind. They they see them as disposable. If you're not in this gifted, yeah. talented honors mm-hmm. AP track, they see the yep. rest of your entire class as disposable. I've yep. seen it firsthand, and it's crazy because um I, the way to circle it back to the conversation we're having is that they measure intelligence on one skill. Is the Eurocentric Eurocentric standard? If you know the answer to these questions, you're intelligent. You're smart. Right. What about mm-hmm. other forms? And that's why I hate standardized I, in general. I use, you oh have to use them in developmental research. And the first one I used was the K-Bit. And that one literally had questions about matinees. And it was very like European center. The ones that like the Woodcock Johnson, those are all focused that way. But additionally, you were talking about this course and how it's about what you're exposed to and what opportunities you're given. Mm-hmm. And I thought about our, like where we grew up, Darren, it was like predominantly white. Yeah. County and we had typing classes in elementary school but not only that there was never college was never an option it was just the only thing that was presented so like when he said that I was like yeah no one ever made it seem like going to college wasn't what I was going to do and until I was a um 
a mentor in the America Reads America Counts program in college where I met children in PG County and like helped, I was a math tutor and started talking to them and they were like, college? What do you mean college? And I was like, oh baby, come here. Like you can be whatever you want to be. You don't even have to go to school, but like know that you, you're a little black girl, but you can literally do whatever you want. You can go to college, you can start a business, you can, you can be whatever it is you want to be. And you don't have to be pigeonholed into the options that are just presented to you in this neighborhood that you're in right now. Yeah. I just have an example of this just from my childhood too. My mama was so mad, but um, I remember that we had like a standardized test. um, And one of the questions was asking sort of like, which profession out of the listed ones below uses a pick? And there was like an ice climber. There was like a cab driver. You know, there were like a barber and there were like a chef. And I chose the barber because of pick to pick out my hair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the answer was an ice climber. And I was like, that's culturally biased. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. A lot of those questions are even like, not to be stereotypical, but if you're looking at a math question and it's talking about golfing, like what little black boys ever held a golf ball, ever held a golf club? <laughs> like how can they, what is the spatial reasoning? Like how can their mind work to picture this scenario that they've never seen? Whereas if you're talking about Jamal in a basketball, I bet you those kids was for hire because it's something they know. But if you right. look at a lot of those questions or even the paragraphs they give, like Jesse Owens and his white savior, like none of them are necessarily fit to hone in on um, black cultural truths or like any cultural competency in general. It's just the, the scale of whiteness and like yeah. what white people buy by. And it was, when I picked up my psychology minor in undergrad, and I, I took a women's psychology course. And the first thing I learned was that in the original IQ test, women score higher. So what did they do? Mm. Only men were scientists at the time. They went and restructured the test. Yes, they did. Yes, they and, did. And ever since that, I applied that logic to pretty much the foundation of most constructs. Like, if Black folks weren't even considered human, right. what makes you think this is made for them? <laughs> if they didn't have these opportunities at the time, how was this made to work for them and their experiences? Yeah. I just, that's definitely like the center of my work is about normalizing the experience of Black children, but again, like including um, just minority children and also changing classroom settings to be conductive to, conducive, sorry, to how it is that they learn and what's relevant to them. So this, the IQ tests need to go. They all need to be trashed. Period. Yeah. I joke with my with my classmates all the time. If Penn would have looked at GREs, I probably wouldn't be there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same. Like I, I don't even. <laughs> I was like, GR who? GR who? GR you? GR me? GR me? Some math. Once you give me some math, that's not like that X. Y Y plus X. If it's not that, anything more than that, I cannot help you at all. Yeah. I just do not know. Because it's not, I don't use it every day, so why would I? Right. Why just, would I? Notions of literacy. I study, like, I, I feel like I don't talk about my work that much, but um, I study code switching. And even in, I believe it was 1977, there was an Ann Arbor case where there's a group of Black women <clears throat> um, who had sort of, I think it was like, for how many, if it was like five or six, but they were, they're, they're Black kids, um, spoke largely Abonics, largely African-American vernacular English, but in the school system, they were graded sort of for standards of literacy that centered standard American English, I'm putting quotes, um, but standard American English. So they found that these students had lower scores and were not performing literacy at the same rates of white students. And they sued the school district because they said, because you're not taking into account the communicative norms of these different students that they use in their everyday lives, when you're grading them for literacy, they're not going to score to the same standards. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was one Mm -hmm. of the first times, I think, sort of 
like at least federally, there was some sort of recognition of sort of like Ebonics, African-American vernacular English. Um, so I wanted to bring that up as we were talking about education, but it's, it's made its way into the curriculum, into the classroom, into the structures, into the institutions. And I think that we're just constantly going to be fighting against it. Like, so I think yeah. until people change the architecture of these spaces, like the architecture, not in terms of the literal building, but the architecture in terms of the culture that we have in the space, how are we supposed to integrate these people? You want to bring them in and then you want to strip them of everything that makes them them <laughs> and yeah. tell them to assimilate. <laughs> so I will say it could also be the literal, like architecture like I look at naturalistic versus structured environments for learning and like I'll test children and I'll look at socioeconomic status and you know maybe you grew up and your parents didn't put you in that computer class or have all these fancy experiences but that real life experience that you have if we made the classroom like that you would ace everything. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was going to speak on that from the perspective of AAVE. Like, mm-hmm. when we're speaking institutionally or systemically, it isn't valued or seen as valid. Nah. People who aren't Black don't acknowledge that, like, <laughs> AAVE has rules. You it can't does. just sit up here and put any words together. No. <laughs> like, it has actual rules. That's why it's so easy to spot a troll on Twitter who's pretending to be Black, but isn't, because they're not abiding by the rules. Like, <laughs> yeah. Even though rules exist. <laughs> Right. Like, A-A-B-E is valid as the F. Yeah. Really like, like, I love the habitual B because it's a tense that doesn't exist. Yeah. It's standard mm-hmm. English. You know, I'd be at mm-hmm. the park. That's, <laughs> we know what you're talking about. I do be at the park. I'm going to explain it. But, like, it's so strange because then when you're sort of writing papers or putting stuff, can you write a whole paper in African-American vernacular English? Like, you can, but how are the reviewers going to accept it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> They'll no. publish you? So it's like, why do I have to change my sort of natural way and a lot of ways of talking in order to sort of, uh, to publish the work or, or to do things. Make you know? it palpable yeah. for white people. Oh, yeah. A lot of people, AAVE is lazy. Like, that, you, that's just lazy talk. Like, it's not lazy at all. It's something real and true. Yes. If we can have conversations amongst each other and we know every single thing that's coming out of our mouth, then it is a valid form of communication. Yeah. Like, communication is communication as long as the, the receiver knows what it is that the sender will say. Right. <laughs> that mm-hmm. is communication. Yeah, and like the code of it. You sent me the Henry Louis Gates piece, Stacey, mm-hmm. on signifying. But I literally found that like in Spain, you know, when I, everyone was speaking Spanish and I wanted to speak English, but I didn't want people sort of who kind of understood English a bit to understand me. If I spoke like thick A-A-V-E, people legit didn't understand me. And I'm like, mm-hmm. look at the brilliance of Black people because this was a language <laughs> where you could really just talk-ish about the slave mm-hmm. owner right in front of their face, but they would not even know it. <laughs> and black people to this day do this, you know? <laughs> Signifying monkey. We can say as much as we want, and a lot of people will have no idea. <laughs> no idea. I'm like, I love the brilliance. The brilliance. Now you remember the, the, the Wu the Chile? <laughs> Chile. Chile. Like, girl. Girl. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so... I don't even know. Also, with that thesis research, the synopsis is that identity affirming spaces, as I stated before, should be something that is like nationwide. You shouldn't have to only go to an HBCU in order to know what that feels like, in order to be able to take that from that space and apply it to other spaces. But it was also going off of this one statistic that HBCUs, they equate for about 4% of institutions of mm. higher education. They only enroll about 14% of Black students who decide to go to college, but they produce nearly 50% of Black professionals. 
So my question is, what in the world is happening in space that's, wanting, that's leading these individuals to want to gain such measurable levels of self-efficacy and success? Yeah. And um, from my research, that's where a lot of it pointed to the fact that this identity-affirming space built this foundation for those folks to interact in multicultural or predominantly white spaces and not leave parts of themselves behind, which helped a lot when it came to their mental health <laughs> because they weren't always suppressing who they were. Wow. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for this time, Stacy. Thank you for all of this. Like the rich conversation. <laughs> rich. Thank y'all for having me. Knowledge. Yes. Remember us when you're famous. <laughs> <laughs> y'all will get there before me. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, thank you. And I think that was a good discussion. So yeah. we'll go ahead and move on to our word on the street. So for this week's Word on the Street, we are talking the conversation between Lil Nas X, who I love, and Nikki, who I love as well. (laughs) So The Shade Room shared a post. I have it up now, so just to read it. So uh, Lil Nas X tweeted out, I have this song I want you on, and was wondering, it has this little sort of like meme, like I'm proposing, to Nicki Minaj. And then she responded... um, or actually, I don't know if she responded right away, but there was a thread underneath where people were talking about how come you never claimed her when people asked if you were a barb. We all knew who you were. And then he <laughs> said, I didn't want people to know I was gay, to be honest. And someone else commented, being a barb don't make you gay. And then he commented, it don't, but people will assume if you had an entire fan page dedicated to Nikki, you are gay. And the rap music industry ain't exactly built or accepting of gay men yet. Um, so that was that post. And then Nikki came back and said, it was a bit of a sting when you denied being a bar, but I understand. Bo emoji. Congrats on building up your confidence to speak your truth, Lil Nas X. So I wanted to hear your reactions, what you thought. I thought it was interesting. <laughs> um, I thought that considering that she's actually officially legally Miss Petty now, Mrs. Petty, <laughs> um, that she handled it very eloquently. Um, I think... There's something to be said about someone denying their fandom because they don't want to be associated with stereotypes about men who like Nicki Minaj. Um, But then to also, you know, recognize what that meant for them, even though, like, this would have been a really good opportunity to uplift another artist and to collaborate. Um, So... It's just interesting. Yeah, I just felt like it was like, I was like black gay man, like presumably I think as far as I understand, straight black woman, Nicki Minaj. I was like, whoa, our friendship now. <laughs> it's like, I don't see these interactions that often, so I'm joking. But what I thought was interesting were sort of like the fact that I was thinking about Massage Noir because we've been talking about that and how in Lil Nas X not wanting to sort of be associated with being gay, he was ready to you know, be out here in public and shame Nikki or like not say to be a barb or shame her music um, in particular. He was a Judas uh, to, the, <laughs> <laughs> to the other barbs, you know? <laughs> yeah, and it's like, I, it was it was hard. I could hold space for both because it's like, I, I could understand like the, the stereotype threat of being gay and the homophobia that could come with that, particularly as a black man. But at the same time, you know, doing it at the expense of a black woman. So... Because <laughs> it could have, it actually could have not, I don't know how people are receptive yeah. to artists who are gay at all, but it there's the alternative of it could have been a really good 
uh, collaboration to begin with and a support system because she knew that he was a fan. Like she knows her barbs. So, (laughs) so it could have been like, you know, I see you coming up. Let me hook you up with people or let's work together. Like it could have, if he didn't deny it, it also could have helped him not only um, in terms of like being himself entirely, but then also for this career that he wanted. Yeah. I mean, I guess, yeah, I I received that. I think that makes sense. I just wonder if he was at that place yet where he was able to deal with like any potential fallout or anything. But I love how she like responded to like, she was very forgiving and she like congratulated him on living in his truth and stuff. And I was like, Mm -hmm. that's nice. And she never said she wouldn't do the collab. So (laughs) it was just acknowledging that that was the center of the like, trepidation for this proposal was the fact that he had denied her <laughs> judas denied <laughs> sorry <laughs> he was stuck down <laughs> but yeah like uh she centered it in like about that and not necessarily about this future collaboration so i love that she addressed that she understood the concerns surrounding identifying with her music and just her platform in general yeah and i love um i don't know if i read his apology did I read his apology but basically he apologized and I just thought it was just so nice to see this interaction in public where he he was accountable it was just like hey I shouldn't have done that like I'm sorry you know and then she responded and like was forgiving she didn't have to be forgiving but she was forgiving and you know that was it so I was like look at this public display of like what can be and also too it was like (laughs) Lil Nas X, an example, I was like, be, be an example for Black Ben, Lil Nas X. So <laughs> thank you for showing people how to apologize publicly <laughs> and openly. The thing is that it wasn't a secret. I remember when he came out, I was listening to the Reed podcast yeah. and they were like, isn't he a barb? Like, <laughs> like when his music first came out. So like people knew because obviously he was very public with it. So it wasn't yeah. like a secret secret. It was just a secret to people who chose not to... Right, yeah. And, like, you could, it, it just, I, I know you're not saying this, but you could be a barb, you could be a straight barb, too. So, like, you know, for any straight Nicki Minaj listeners out there, you know, it's okay to be a barb and to be an outspoken barb. <laughs> I mean, you don't necessarily have to be a barb, you can be a fan. <laughs> oh, you could be a fan. You could be I, a fan. I, don't, I don't know about all that, but we support you and yes. the artists that you like, and um, it would be nice and, and idealistic if people didn't associate certain sexual preferences yeah <laughs> is that what the people say but yeah preferences with music <laughs> with art music entertainment that people enjoy yeah so yeah that's i guess our rundown so should we should we close it out was that an episode i think we should thank you again for joining us for another episode of millennials unpublished tune in each week as we all figure out life together Yeah, please continue to rate, subscribe, write a review, and share the podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please shout us out on Instagram at Millennials Unpublished. That's with two N's and two L's. And for me, at Darren27. And I'm at Jaunty Jazz. So thank you again. Uh, Tune in next week. Bye. (laughs)